millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Today we have a bit of a different topic. Um, It's something that no matter how civilized we get as a society, we don't seem to be able to shake, particularly in the UK. And that topic is class. Look at how the, the identity politics has found expression within the capitalist system. Ultimately, it's led to the Democratic Party and Costa Coffee and Pret a Manger and all of these, you know, selling cups with rainbow flags on them, while at the same time largely being complicit in a, in, 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 in a system that economically disadvantages people of all races, of all backgrounds, based on their social class, not on their race, not on their gender. Here to discuss it with us is Loki, otherwise known as Darren Mugabe. Hello there, how are you, Freddie? I'm really well, thanks. So just to give a bit of an introduction, you are a, uh, originally a rapper um, from Scotland, but you've then developed into something of a kind of social commentator. You, you uh, wrote an award-winning book called Poverty Safari, detailing your um, childhood in, a, uh, in Glasgow. And you've currently just about to, in fact, you're halfway through releasing a, a BBC series on the topic of class called Class Wars. Maybe just give us a sense of you know, what, what that book described and what your, what your upbringing was like. Absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, I gr- my upbringing was not uncommon. Um, I grew up in the 80s and 90s uh, when the, the massive economic transition that sort of characterises Margaret Thatcher's premiership was, was well underway. You know, in my own household, my mother had a serious drink and drug problem. Um, opportunity was thin on the ground for a lot of people. Schools became overwhelmed by young people with behavioural problems and learning uh, difficulties. And the general morale of the area, uh, uh, as a result of many of the social bonds and connections and a sense of purpose and shared history and identity, fragmenting under the duress of this transition, 
uh, it became quite at points negative and frightening and extremely stressful just moving around. If your book was more about privilege and about um, parts of our country that have been kind of forgotten about, your new topic for this uh, series that is currently on the BBC is about class. And that's kind of slightly different, although related topic, isn't it? I mean, were you aware when you were growing up uh, in Pollock of class? Was that something you even thought about? The term class itself was in the air a lot then. There was a lot of activism going on when I was a kid uh, around resisting community centre closures, school closures, uh, motorways being built through public land, uh, as well as the the remnants of the anti-poll tax movement, which had successfully deposed Margaret Thatcher um, in, in the previous years. And so there was a lot of confidence in, in, the, in the utility and necessity of grassroots activism, which differed in so many ways from much of the activism that we see now, particularly uh, on what is construed to be the left by mainstream culture. So you had, uh, a, you had a sense of belonging to a kind of working class back then? Yes. Yeah, well, that, that's why the language was in the air, because everything, every problem that, 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 that appeared to be occurring within the community seemed to be uh, a conflict of interests, which could be boiled down to being class in nature. So the motorway being built through our park was a conflict because, on one hand, the motorway was to help deal with traffic congestion for more affluent parts of the country to travel into the city whereas the park was one of the, the few spaces where people from our area were able to go that was free from pollution, where you could get access to wildlife. And so that dynamic's replicated in many other areas, whether it be housing, whether it be public health. So class, you know, it, it can be a divisive topic, it can be a contentious topic, but rather than it creating social divisions, I think the concept has endured because when articulated correctly, it can describe what drives social division. And I think that's why many people are apprehensive about using the language of class. Is there a difference between class interests in the kind of economic Marxist sense of, you know, this group in society versus another group in society, and then class in the kind of way that we talk about it a lot in the UK, which ends up being more about weird signals of social status, language, um, you go into that in your in your TV program, and I thought that was a bit of a new departure. Yes, I think that that I think that the, some of those old concepts that the old sort of Marxist reading of capitalism generally, well, a lot of it has been uh, disastrously applied uh, wherever it has been tried. I think some of the concepts themselves, in terms of understanding certain aspects of how we have organised our economy do uh, hold up to scrutiny and have been validated, and particularly so in recent years, particularly the accumulation of wealth and damage that that can do. But unfortunately, uh, one of the great successes of capitalism is that, um, you know, as well as leading to, to, to generally higher uh, quality of life for, for broader numbers of people, access to information, technology, innovation, and things of that nature, it also has created parallel societies which have completely different social experiences they have completely different cultural aspirations and they have a different sense of identity 
some have an ascribed identity, some have an achieved identity. And so what this does is it puts our democracy and our system under increasing strain because as you create parallel societies that don't have to interact with one another except for basic economic transactions, then uh, people have to come to all sorts of conclusions about the intentions of the people on the other side of the ravine. And so this can lead to a sort of breakdown in understanding where ultimately all the data shows that the House of Commons in the last 30 or 40 years has completely closed down working class voices who used to go there to represent working class interests. And a I mean, prevailing sense... Is that of partly grammar schools? A bit of a detail, but that, that explains yeah, a lot no, of why there's fewer... It's also, it, it's also in part because it, what working class life entails now is so much more challenging. So in order to pursue a career in politics now, um, you might have to go to university. Uh, you might have to, in some ways, become uh, be, learn how to conceal aspects of how you present socially so as to, to, to not indicate that you come from a working class area. That's why we have a kind of a prevailing voice in Parliament now, whether it's Liberals, Conservatives or Labour. There tends to be fundamental agreement on some of the big questions of how we organise society. But ulterior to all of that, we have uh, things that often escape our notice, such as how we speak, how we dress, who we marry. So I thought that this would be an interesting way Rather than going over the old arguments where I think people are really, uh, people are already quite set in their mind about what they think, however they think about it, this provides another way into the topic of class where we see how it's expressed culturally. What's interesting in your case is also that, you know, as you talk about yourself, you've kind of moved class. Um, I mean, what, what class do you consider yourself to be in now? Depends, first of all, what, where in the UK that I'm living. So based on my income pre-pandemic, then I would probably be lower middle class in London, but upper middle class in Glasgow. Um, based on my social position, cultural capital, my, my uh, ability to create opportunities to be networked into uh, uh, groups of people uh, who can sustain and support me professionally and personally, certainly upper middle class. You could argue that in the kind of class system that matters more these days, which is a kind of celebrity entertainment sort of hierarchy, you know, you're a rapper, musician, present things on TV, write best-selling books. You're, you're at the top end of that. Yes, absolutely. And this is why, this is why uh, I, I have uh, been kind of thrust into a period of contemplation about the nature of that because one thing that you don't get from people who write about social class is a sense of their experience of all of it. So you get the hardcore lefties who write from the position of the proletariat and dismantle the system and will create something new uh, and resist, resist, resist. Or you get it from the perspective of, 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 of uh, people who have only known privilege to the extent that they don't, it's imperceptible to them and you can't really blame them for that because they've known nothing else. And they talk in terms of meritocracy and they talk in terms of poverty of aspiration, which are meaningless terms with no evidential basis, but you can't blame people for arriving at these conclusions 
where I'm coming from on this is, while not necessarily unique, my position and culture in terms of as a writer and someone who's producing things for television and has a certain level of public visibility is quite unusual because I uh, have now seen life on both sides of this ravine. So this brings into this brings certain aspects of my value system into conflict, and I wrestle with these things because I start to develop interests economically that I would normally conflate with privilege and being middle class, such as where am I going to move so that my son can get into a better school? Um, should I buy another house or should I, sell, should I sell this house and get a house or should I have two houses? You know, and these are conversations do you that feel, go Do you feel guilty like, at all about that stuff? I feel conflicted. Guilt, I wouldn't say guilt. Uh, if there's any guilt at play, it's more the survivor's guilt of coming from uh, a difficult upbringing and being thoroughly aware of all the people who didn't make it and continue to to falter because of the adversities that they've experienced. So, so where I come from in this is, are you able to get up and get on and also never forget where you came from? Because I think in order to achieve that, you have to become self-deluded in some way. Because while you might still feel a sense of social solidarity with people further down the food chain, if you're following your own economic interests, which are shaped by being in a particular social class, then you naturally are coming into conflict all the time with people further down the ladder. And how people explain that to themselves and justify that to themselves is what fascinates me. Because I can see over the horizon line when I forget all the help that I got to get where I am, when I forget what it's like to be poor, and it's just a rhetorical device that I use on television, uh, I can see over the horizon line how I could begin to internalise certain myths about the, na- the nature of society and how it changes people. Do you think it's all particularly bad in the UK? I mean, a lot of our viewers are from the US and around the world. I know I, I used to work in market research, and there, when you're kind of dividing your audience, in America, you do it purely by income. And in, the, in here in the UK, we have this thing called social grade, which is a complex questionnaire involving education and all sorts of things. And income's just part of that. Do you think we have a different understanding of class here in the UK? Yes, and this is evidenced every single year when data is published on who believes they're part of one class when they're actually part of another class. So one of the problems with the, the kind of concerted effort to lush public discourse of the evocative language of class and replace it with terms like social mobility is that uh, people become so alienated from what the terms actually mean that they believe it's all about subjectivity. So you have people who are in working class communities who are being treated like crap by employers uh, who are having to pay increasing uh, money uh, costs for public transportation which uh, is delivering less and less for the money that you are paying. So basically, people are getting shafted every direction and being farmed by predatory uh, predatory tech companies. They're being farmed by uh, predatory debt companies, uh, payday loan companies. I mean, it's just all done algorithmically now. It's like, are you poor? Here you go, there's an advert. But you still have people who think that they're middle class. Those people living in those circumstances, they believe they're middle class. Many of them vote for for conservative 
government. And so this, in my view, while they're entitled to form any political belief they want, and I certainly wouldn't judge them, and I certainly would not speak to them based on that, at the same time, I would fundamentally challenge their conception of class if they even had one at all. And so this is part of the issue because we need, you know, imagine your house burnt down, but you couldn't use the word fire to describe it. Imagine you almost drowned and when you tried to tell someone what happened, the word water eluded you. Sometimes we need to use the language of class because it helps us to more clearly articulate some of the trends that we see in society along lines of employment, education, health and political exclusion. Does that mean that you would like the idea of a working class to be a kind of acceptable label again? It, maybe, maybe that's part of what's happened, that with all this emphasis on social mobility, it's become a sort of a shameful thing that people don't want to describe themselves as. Yes, of course, and you only have to look at people like Anne Robinson, Jeremy Kyle, uh, and this explosion of media in the early 2000s. Uh, which was extremely cruel in terms of how it portrayed uh, or engaged with people from lower class backgrounds. Uh, I mean, the Jeremy Kyle show was was almost a kind of media Stanford experiment, you know, where people are socialised into an abusive culture. And because they see everyone else around them is doing it, then they themselves think it's okay. And the only thing that killed that show was someone committing suicide. And, and, and so you have to wonder, where does... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The perception that being working class is no longer acceptable come from. It doesn't come from the working class because the working class don't work in media. The working class don't work in television. I've been reading book after book and academic journal after academic journal and research for my second book. And there's no end to the evidence that the conception of working class at the level of culture in Britain 
is shaped by middle class people who have no idea what poverty is like, what it does physiologically, behaviorally, culturally. They have no idea about social network science that explains vividly why communities break down. But they walk around with this idea that they know stuff because other people tell them they know stuff and no one can interject to interrupt the circular thinking and the assumption that often forms the basis of much of the content that they create. So part of my, my role, I see uh, grandiose or not, within media is to interrupt those conversations and, 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 and show people in television and in media and in publishing that, that they, they don't just have to bring someone like me in to give something authenticity. They don't have to bring me in to capture a working class demographic. People like me actually know what we're talking about sometimes. And just because we might have an accent that might indicate something else, if you just listen to us long enough, you'll see that we have a sophistication and an intelligence and a poetry of our own that's just as valid as anyone from any other social class. I'm pleased to use the word poetry because the next thing I was actually going to ask was, was about beauty. Um, I noticed there was a moment in your TV programme when you were living in this castle in Scotland and you went to the window and you said, well, if I lived here, I would just think it's a beautiful world. Uh, it actually reminded me of a moment in your book when you're, I think you're on the bus and you say something like, that girl's hair is beautiful. Yeah, and yeah, everyone's yeah. a bit like, what's he, what's he talking about? Why do you think you were using that kind of language? Why were you seeing beauty and poetry where other people weren't? Mainly because I was being encouraged at home to be creative and artistic because this was part of our family DNA. Um, obviously, there was other things that were part of our DNA, addiction, alcoholism, but it was a complicated picture in our household. My dad was a musician and we always had guitars and music and it was a very sort of traditional Celtic kind of environment when we would have family get-togethers. So I had a natural inclination to language and words uh, and as that began to develop and the response I would get from adults around me, then I, 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 I sort of that confirmed that I was on the right track. But you put me in a school you put me in a school where where there's a very specific idea of what it is to be a boy and suddenly you're in conflict because the only people that are harder on working class people than the ruling classes are other working class people. We regiment one another so strictly in terms of dress, in terms of the range of topics that we're allowed to be interested in, in and discuss, even in terms of things like nutrition which is changing a little now. But back then, you know, if you were talking about hummus and couscous and all of these other things, that sort of marked you out as somebody who thought they were a little bit better than everyone else. And and back then, everything everything that fell out of our, with our frame of reference was just labelled with the synonym gay, which just described everything. You know, that's gay, theatre's gay, music's gay, it's football, it's boxing, it's fighting. And uh, I, I just, I didn't like that environment at all. And I always did resist it. Sometimes coming to blows as a result of it. So do you think this might be too much of a stretch? But do you think that kind of focus on economics to the exclusion of everything else and only looking through ability of people to get up and out and, and the things we've been talking about leaves out important spheres of life like beauty that somehow we need to think about more 
if we're going to heal this problem? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think even just when I look at uh, working class culture, um, which is, is not very well represented in mainstream um, and wherever a working class voice or artist uh, emerge, they will learn very quickly that it will suit their career to stick to a specific brief and play in a specific sandbox. I mean, you should see the looks on some TV executives' faces when I pitch them ideas about TV shows that don't involve people pointing a camera in the faces of poor people or, or, or dramatic depictions of me being chased around the house by my mother with a knife. Well, that's um, what they want. Yes, this is what they want. This is what they want. But that was what people... It was the same with the book. Beauty is quite a subjective thing. I remember in the during uh, before the independence referendum, when I was part of a kind of collective of artists, were, were largely middle class, were largely subservient to Scottish government, uh, and I wasn't cool with any of this. We were at this conference, and we were all talking this and that, and blah blah blah. And I and I remember saying. There's a lot of poetry that goes on in working class communities that we miss because we don't associate certain social classes with art and with sophistication. And I described to them a play park that had been redesigned by a bank. Uh, and this was the bank's way of trying to recast its image uh, and after the, the banking crisis. So they painted the park, they made it all nice, they put the signage up, you know, bank of whatever, there it is. But simultaneously to that, the bank were also sending out threatening letters to all people in that community saying, if you don't pay your, you know, if you don't pay this fee, we're going to hit you harder. A lot of these fees subsequently turned out to be illegal. So what happened was the local kids burnt the park down, right? That was their message. That was their message. They burnt the park down. Now, for me, there's poetry in that. If you understand the various levels at which that community is being experienced, because of the bank. Uh, but I remember the sneers from people around me at that conference who were all serious poets. They were all seriously into poetry and beauty was a specific thing and sophistication was a specific thing. Culture wasn't how people live. Culture was a commodity, something that you wear like a handbag to signify that you are intelligent. And, you know, I think that that's where... This concept of beauty is, is, as you, 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 you put, as you imply, it, it runs into problems depending on who's talking about it. Because we all have different conceptions of beauty and poetry based on our experiences. Let me take you in a slightly different direction for a moment. Um, recent years, there's been this new focus on identity politics, on using other immutable signifiers as a kind of a sign of someone's class, so whether it's race or gender or other things. What's your general approach to that? Is that is that helpful? My general my general approach is that I am largely, and I think most people would be, when they think about what the the, the ultimate aim and objective of so-called identity politics is, it's it's equality. Most people are on board with that. Identity politics, as it's discussed now, is a public relations disaster because it emerges on Ivy League campuses from young idealistic middle-class students who have no idea about the intersection between 
their very exclusive way of thinking and talking about reality and working class communities where a lot of this language just rouses scepticism and resentment because it's the language of officialdom. It's the language of authority. It's just another generation of people who don't want to listen to working class experiences and don't want to hear it. Um, and dismiss, people will be dismissed for being aggressive, people will be dismissed for this, that, and the next thing. So in that sense, uh, in that sense, um, it's been interesting to observe uh, over the last couple of years, watching as mainstream society conflates identity politics with the left, while at the same time, some of the best critiques and the best pushbacks of identity politics come from the left. The actual left, the left that's interested in material conditions, that's interested in inequality of opportunity, not necessarily in just obsessing over and over about, as you say, arbitrary aspects of our identity. Practically, does that mean that you would prefer a special treatment and help to go to people who are economically disadvantaged as a principle instead of worrying too much about race or sexual orientation, all these other things that people seem to be so concerned about? I think you can't have a conversation about race, gender, LGBT issues, disability, without parallel conversations of all of them around class. Because, I mean, look at how, look at how the, the identity politics has found expression within the capitalist system. Ultimately, it's led to the Democratic Party and Costa Coffee and Pret-a-Manger, and all of these, you know, selling cups with rainbow flags on them, while at the same time, largely being complicit in a, in, 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 in a system that economically disadvantages people of all races, of all backgrounds, based on their social class, not on their race, not on their gender. Now, I have to caveat that by saying there are very specific ways in which people of colour and women and LGBT people and people with disabilities are disadvantaged by our system, both economically and culturally. And, 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 and these are obvious, and I don't think most people would dispute that fact. But if you do not have the class analysis uh, that uh, imposed over the, the other analysis of identity, then what happens is you create quotas that lead to middle-class people of colour, middle-class people with disabilities, middle-class women and LGBT people moving into positions of authority. And, and while that does represent progress, and I'm not saying that it doesn't, it doesn't address the fundamental inequalities that we say that we're all fighting for. One group that does not get special recognition is white heterosexual males, for example, uh, for obvious reasons. But th that's why they are disproportionately voting for populist parties, at least less well-off members of that group, because no one seems to care about them very much. I mean. In Pollock, where you know where you came from, what's the view on that? Do you think there is there's there is there resentment around that? The resentment, if the, the resentment, whatever it's felt among uh, you know working class white men, um, the resentment is 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 there's two two aspects to it. One aspect is it's not very clear what the role of a man in society is right now. Uh, and I think that that's okay when you handle these discussions with appropriate levels of sensitivity and care. But when you start to discuss men without a class analysis, it means that you subconsciously begin to conflate 
very, very privileged rich men with your average Joe on the street who's trying to keep his family afloat, who's working a ridiculous amount of hours a week without a class analysis that leads to that clumsy conflation, which then rhetorically just invites uh, derision and just invites uh, debate and division. And, and, and so when this takes place on social media, I think it just muddies the water. So part of the point of the class analysis is that it helps us to speak very specifically about which kind of group are we talking about here when we talk about terms like privilege. Yes, males enjoy certain privileges, males of all social classes, but privilege itself is a word that could maybe have been thought through a little better before academics and before activists and students ran onto Facebook uh, telling everybody, you can't deny my experience, but I can deny your experience. <laughs> and it's not worked out very well. You know, it's not worked out very well. But again, I will, I will, I will say that that's not the left. That's a product of liberalism. That's a, almost a product of capitalism in and of itself. You can see how it interacts with social media. So the, le the, left is, the left is something separate from that. The culture wars of the past few years have taken us to quite a weird place where there are quite a few people on the old left who now agree with quite a few people on the kind of old right, I suppose, against a kind of centrist version of liberalism that's the kind of thing you're talking about. It's, it's realigned us all, hasn't it? It, it has. It has. And I, I mean, I, I think in some ways that might be quite liberating for everyone. I mean, it goes to show how quickly political convictions and tribalism can be cast aside when people feel that there's a new common enemy or a new common threat. So just sociologically, that's fascinating to observe. Uh, and I know that certainly over my last few years navigating this environment, um, that uh, I've certainly had some strange bedfellows at certain points in terms of allies and certain uh, debates or discussions that I've been having. But I don't. I don't necessarily think that you have to. Uh, you have to reject all of identity politics, or you have to see. Uh, you have to uh, see it as a in a stereotypical way. Often, the the worst examples and most extreme examples that we, of behaviour that we see are socially social media generated. So they appeal to certain impulses within people who have certain perceptions of what's going on because of social media. And then this is proliferated throughout social media for likes and retweets and engagement. Actually, when you operate within communities and you go out and speak to the feminists and you go out and speak to the LGBT activists, the sort of people that you might have a kind of caricature of in your mind, you find that the vast majority of people that you're talking about and dealing with share many of your concerns about aspects of this activism that we see and, and are trying to figure out ways of navigating it without being too destructive. So it's important to always distinguish between what is going on on social media and YouTube and what is going on in your community. Because I think most people, often as I am when I'm confronted with real-life conservatives and not Tories on the telly, then, uh, you know, uh, the conception you have, the conception you have because of media is quite different from the reality in real life. And sometimes I think we forget that we should engage in real life too. I would agree with that. Darren McGarvey, thank you so much. There's some hope there of uh, potential new alliances uh, going forward. That was Darren McGarvey, otherwise known as Loki, the Scottish rapper, writer and filmmaker, talking to us about class. 
It was absolutely fascinating. Thanks to him and thanks also to you for joining. This was Lockdown TV. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.